Let's pray. Father in heaven, we believe that your church is built essentially by your word, by your son. And we ask now that you would do the supernatural work that we simply at the end of the day cannot accomplish, and that is that you would bring glory to your name, Lord Jesus, through the preaching of your word as believers are built up and fortified and strengthened in their faith. Lord, we have come hungry and would like to eat this morning. So I pray that you would break the bread of life through this text we have in the Gospel of Luke. I pray too, Father, for for anyone among us who may not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that the Gospel is powerful not only to sanctify but to create new life, to regenerate, to save. And so, Lord, use this text however you would in all of our lives this morning. Lord Jesus, we we love you and we are devoted to the mission that you've given us to be and make disciples, and this text is so right in the center of that. And so come and, and build your church. Teach us how to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and we will have considered our time well spent this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One week ago, we began to drill down on the topic of discipleship, and not merely discipleship in general, but disciple-making in particular. And not just disciple-making, but making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That is what we are after and we are on about in this local church. From our our text last Sunday, we learned that at the heart of our 2020 vision is a growing army of reproducing leaders and that Christ himself set that pattern. Last week, we discovered from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, that making disciples who make disciples requires at least three things. It requires spiritual preparation, it requires intentional selection, and finally, it requires personal association. So if you ever wondered how to get started in this thing that Jesus calls the Great Commission, you could do a lot worse than begin with those three steps. Spiritual preparation, intentional selection, personal association. What Jesus did in the training of the Twelve and what the New Testament offers us in its vision for disciple-making is, well, not all that complicated. Behind the the complex symphony of God's global salvation is a simple two-beat rhythm of local Christian mission. And that two-beat rhythm is enjoy the gospel yourself and trust the gospel to others. Enjoy the gospel yourself and trust the gospel to others. That's it. So as we heard last week, Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, you then, my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, the note we struck at the end of last week's sermon is that making disciples who make disciples means being committed to the supernatural shaping of another person's convictions and character and ministry competencies. We call them, for short, the three C's in this church. 
At Mount Free Church, by three C's, we do not mean calm, cool, and collected. That is not my main agenda with leaders in this church. Rather, we are, we are focused on theological convictions, on growing Christian character, and on increasing and maturing ministry competencies. So convictions, character, competencies. Those are the three C's that we are after. Well, let's say you're, you're this far. By God's grace and by His mercy, you are a disciple of Jesus. Furthermore, you are pursuing Him in Scripture and in prayer. You're, you're seeking to live in the strength that He supplies to the, to the glory that He deserves. And furthermore, you've found someone or you've got your eye on another person that's on the path with Jesus, but maybe they're just a few steps behind you. And they've agreed to come under your wing for training so that you can spend some regular time together. This may be as simple and profound as someone under your own roof, one of your own children, or perhaps several of them. Maybe it's a grandchild. It could be someone from your community group or somebody from your place of work. We just want to ask the question now, what do you actually do together? Like, what sorts of convictions and character and competencies, by God's grace, are we aiming to build into them? Well, enter the Sermon on the Mount. Immediately after Jesus chose his 12 disciples, it says that he came to a level place and began to teach. Immediately after Jesus chose his 12 disciples, we see the greatest sermon ever preached. And it says that Jesus came to a level place, whereas Matthew calls it, he came up onto a mountain. We can probably put together these two, that Jesus came to a plateau within a mountain range. They're describing the same reality. And though in Luke's gospel, it only contains about half a chapter, because of its importance, we're going to take the next four weeks in this church and walk carefully through this field manual for disciple making. These are the convictions. This is the character. These are the ministry competencies that we are interested on, interested in and want to put a full court press on in the days ahead. We've already heard the text read, so let's just go to the big idea. Here's, here's the big idea this morning. Disciple making involves seeing this world upside down, knowing that one day Jesus will turn things right side up. Disciple-making, first and foremost, involves seeing this world upside down, knowing that one day Jesus will turn things right side up. Now listen again to the first three verses of our text, because I want to make a passing but important observation about that paragraph that sets up what are known as the, the Beatitudes. So look with me at Luke chapter 6, verses 17 and 19. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. Did you notice that there are three different groups of people in verse 17? In verse 17, we have a them, and then we have a great crowd of disciples, and then finally we have a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. The first group is them. Who's them? That's the 12, right? It's the 12 apostles that he just called and, and commissioned in verses 12 to 16. That's the them. 
And you'll notice also in verse 17, it speaks of a larger group of Christ followers that the text refers to as a great crowd of His disciples. That is, beyond the twelve, there were a whole host of other disciples from whom Jesus made His his choice of twelve. And then there's the multitude. And the multitude, we can only assume, are largely comprised of, if not entirely comprised, of unbelievers from the surrounding community. What does verse 18 tell us they came for? They came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And what happens? What does Jesus do? Verse 19 is clear. Power came out from Him, and He healed them all. Do you suppose there's a lesson here for us in this, on the front end of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is getting ready to preach to His disciples. He didn't preach to the crowd per se, to the disciples. He's getting ready to preach to them about the kind of folks they need to become in order to be the sort of people who make disciples who make disciples of Jesus. But when he starts to do so, this huge throng of people show up, most of whom are not ready to disciple anybody. They just want their healing, please. They're willing to listen, but they are mainly after concerned about their health, getting their health issues fixed and getting physically well. So what does he do? Does he resent them being there? He heals them. The text says He heals them all. So what's the principle? I I think it's relatively straightforward. Jesus knows this instinctively, and you do too if you think about it, that people don't care how much you know, finish it, until they know how much you care. Jesus is modeling the principle of touch before tell. The way that we use the prayer in our list of five evangelism cards goes this way. Lord, give me opportunities to demonstrate the love of Christ to so-and-so and especially to communicate the gospel of Christ to them. But that first step is critical. The love of Christ needs demonstration as well as communication. That's what Jesus is up to here. Good works ought to accompany the good news. Jesus doesn't just preach good news. He is good news. And these people know it. The multitude's going to hear him out. He's not addressing them. Verse 20 is quite clear. This is a message for disciples. But he's got the ear of the entire crowd, and he did it by being a reputation, by having a reputation of person who cares for people in physical and tangible ways. You think this might have something to do with the development of our compassion and mercy ministry here at Mount Evangelical Free Church 10 years ago and on into the days ahead? How about the importance of getting the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling up and running over the next two years? Friends, this is as simple as being a good neighbor to folks on your street. They do not care how much you know, I assure you, until they know how much you care. So let's follow the example of our Savior here. Touch before tell. Demonstrate the gospel as you communicate the gospel. Okay, so back to the big idea. Disciple-making involves seeing this world upside down, knowing one day that Jesus will turn things right side up. So we've got two points today, fairly straightforward and simple. Both of these are drawn from verses 20 to 26 of Luke chapter 6. And remember, we're seeking to ask the question now, what sort of deposit are we looking to put into the hands of those that we are discipling? What sort of convictions and character and competencies by God's grace are we aiming to build into them? Well, let's, let's start here. Point number one. In the context of a personal discipling relationship, disciples who make disciples are quick to address four clear evidences of God's grace. In the context of a personal discipling relationship, disciples who make disciples are clear and quick to address four clear evidences of God's grace. 
Now, let's note one overall structural issue with the blessings and the woes before we dive into them up close. Scan your eyes over verses 20 to 26. You'll see four blessings and four woes. And not only that, but you'll see a a direct correlation between each blessing and each woe. So the first blessing matches the first woe, the second blessing matches the second woe, and so on. But if you see the way that Luke has arranged things here, it's clear that he's not suggesting four separate groups under each heading. That's not what's going on here. There are only two groups. There's two camps, and you're in one or you're in the other. He's forcing his listeners, and he's forcing us here today to ask this question, which one of these two camps am I in? I have to be in one or the other. As our favorite evangelistic tract puts it, there's only two ways to live. One path is the way of blessing that leads toward everlasting life, and the other path is a way of cursing that leads toward everlasting death. And you say, well, super, get me on the path to life, right? Let's do whatever it takes to keep me off the highway to hell, or so we might think. But here's the sticking point. The pathway that leads to death is incredibly attractive. Suicidally so. In fact, the pathway of woe, as Jesus says in another place, is easy and broad, and most people everywhere are on it. It's your best life now. Well, at the exact same time, the pathway that leads to life, at first glance, appears relatively unappealing. The pathway that leads to everlasting joy is awfully narrow. It's hard, and comparatively few people find it. So it's pretty clear that if we're going to live as authentic followers of Jesus Christ, who are not only on the path to the kingdom, but able to build others up on that path, we're going to need some outside help. We're going to need supernatural assistance, wouldn't you agree? Some supernatural help from God Himself to help us to put our hand to the plow and not look back no matter what the cost. Well, praise God here in verses 20 to 23, that's precisely what we have. Let me show you why. Four times in four verses, we see the word blessed, don't we? Blessed are you who? Blessed are you when? Now, this word is pulling double duty here in these verses. It has at least, the word blessed has at least two significant features to it. The first feature is that blessed is a word that just means happy, means contented and fortunate. So, for example, we see blessed employed this way in, in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2 says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. So, in this case, the words blessed and delight are laid side by side one another because they're, they're synonyms. On one level, blessed simply means happy. It means delighted. At the exact same time, blessed also indicates something about the prior activity of God in the life of the blessed person. Two New Testament examples will do here, and both involve the Apostle Peter. In Matthew 16, 17, um, we have the context of Jesus' famous confession that Jesus is the Christ. This is the moment where things click for Peter, and he realizes who Jesus is. We count this as, as Peter's conversion experience. So in Matthew 16, 17, Peter has just finished saying to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Now, Matthew 16, 17, Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So in this case, is Jesus merely proclaiming that Peter is happy? Well, it's much more than that. Blessed are you, for my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. This word blessed speaks to the mighty activity of God on Peter's behalf to grant him saving faith in the first place. Here's another example. It comes from Peter's own pen in, in 1 Peter 4.14. 1 Peter 4.14, the apostle Peter uses the word blessed in such a way as to link it inextricably with the idea of the grace of God acting powerfully in somebody's life. So 1 Peter 4.14, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You hear that here? It's, it's, it's almost the exact same language of verse 22, actually, in our text today. If you are suffering for the sake of the advance of the gospel, God is at work in your life. You are blessed. So you bring that understanding, you load up the word blessed with those two definitions, and all of a sudden, verses 20 to 23 begin to open up for us. Listen to this now, starting with Luke 6.20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, let's be careful not to get too wound around the axle on the Uh, first two beatitudes here where he talks about you who are poor you who are hungry relatively well-fed and wealthy folks like us can wonder if we are automatically on the outside of this promise because of the lifestyle that we lead are we on the outside of this promise because of how much we eat and how much we might have financially well the answer is no not not automatically We still might find ourselves on the outside of this blessing, but not because we have a savings account and because we eat three squares a day. Remember how Matthew unfolds these two realities in his version of the Sermon on the Mount. We have to harmonize these together. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, what is it? Righteousness. Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Poor and hungry here in Luke 6, 20 and 21 are spiritual realities as much as they are physical ones. Throughout his gospel, Matthew has a tendency to unpack what Luke just seems fit to leave packed tightly together. New Testament scholar Robert Gulick has a very helpful observation here. He just says, the poor in Judaism referred to those in desperate need whose helplessness drives them to a dependent relationship with God. That's the issue here. That's so helpful. How many of us this morning are in the sanctuary? This describes us. In fact, I wonder if this sentence didn't describe the exact reason that got you to the sanctuary today. Your desperate need and your sense of your own helplessness drives you to meet with God and to meet with His people, to a dependent relationship on God in Christ. Now, it's these two realities, namely poverty of spirit, hunger for God, that lead us to a third in verse 21. Blessed are you who weep 
now, for you shall laugh. Now remember, these are parallel beatitudes, and so Matthew 5, 4 has a, has a parallel here. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The weeping here, the, the mourning, the sadness that's in view of, is sadness of spirit in view of the overwhelming avalanche of sinning and suffering that surround us in this world, particularly the suffering and the sinning in our own heart. If you are increasingly aware of your own indwelling sin and the liability, not the asset, the liability you are to your family, to your local church, to your neighborhood, you are blessed. And if you have a desire to see your sin killed, put to death increasingly over the course of your life, God is at work. Finally, verse 22 Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, and so on. Listen, this is simply the cost of following Jesus, isn't it? The Bible doesn't pull any punches here. This is the price we pay for our desire to be sanctified in this life, to grow in holiness. Second um, Peter 3.12 has been so helpful to me over the years, so, so steadying. It says in Second Timothy 3.12, Paul says to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just count on it. Anticipate some varying degree of social ostracism. That's just to be expected in your family, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, even here in the land of Minnesota nice. You can't avoid it. If you take your walk with Christ seriously, it will happen, and you won't have to go out of your way looking for trouble. It will find you. When you're following Jesus, minding your own business, and you begin to sense pushback, what do you do then? Well, remember, remember verse 23. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, great is your reward in heaven. For so their fathers did the prophets. This is how we do suffering as believers. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, has been particularly important to me over the past season. Romans 5, 3 to 4 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Now remember what all of this is. This is your discipleship curriculum. This is what you want to see built into the life of another believer. This is what makes, changes Christians from saplings into oaks of righteousness. That you believe this and that you live this. This is the stuff that you want to address with another believer as you meet with them. A sense of desperate need for Christ, a ravenous hunger for the things of God, and a profound spiritual thirst. We want to help people we are mentoring to mourn their own indwelling sin. We want to encourage them to be prepared to experience rejection and exclusion for the sake of the name of Christ. Something hasn't gone wrong when you're excluded for the name of Christ, something's gone right. It's working. This is the stuff of which strong disciples of Jesus are made because when this is happening in your life, you can be confident God is at work. God is at work. So in the context of a personal discipling relationship, disciples who make disciples are quick to address these four clear evidences of God's grace, the four Beatitudes. The second point today, we've got to deal with the other side of this. 
In the context of a personal discipling relationship, disciples who make disciples are quick to address four genuine causes for legitimate concern. In the context of a personal discipling relationship, disciples who make disciples are quick to address four legitimate causes for genuine concern, legitimate concern. Let's remember the big idea today. Disciple-making involves seeing this world upside down, knowing one day that Jesus will turn things right side up. So look with me once again at chapter 6. This time it's verses 24 to 26. Luke 6, 24 to 26. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, the point here is this. From the sinful present perspective of this world, verses 24 to 26, it looks like Jesus is describing winners, isn't he? But from the the perfect eternal perspective of God's Word, verses 24 to 26, Jesus is describing losers. And not only that, but here in these verses, Jesus may as well be outlining what we so often refer to in our culture as the American dream. This is convicting stuff. Uh, Wikipedia defines the American dream as a national ethos of the United States, the set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success, as well as upward social mobility for family and for children. What an uncomfortable irony that this text falls on Independence Day weekend. Friends, we live in a magnificent country. Don't let anybody tell you any different. On the one hand, we are incredibly grateful, I trust, to live in the land in which we live, a land which allows us to meet like this, a land which permits the disciple of the gospel of Jesus Christ to run free. But if I'm reading Jesus like anywhere in the zip code of faithfully here, we also live in a very dangerous country. Not dangerous for us in terms of being public professing believers, although I believe and I know you believe too that the price to follow Jesus will increase in the days ahead. Now, our nation is dangerous for believers because of the unique temptations it affords us along the lines of this passage. Verse 24 does not consign the wealthy to the seventh circle of hell any more than verse 20 automatically guarantees poor people a free pass into heaven, right? This doesn't work that way. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by what you have or what you don't have. While it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven, it's not impossible. Many rich men are there. Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, and others. Verse 24 is not condemning the wealthy per se. So what's it condemning? I think John Calvin has the answer here. It's it's compelling to me. Calvin says, Jesus is pronouncing a curse not on all the rich, but on those who receive their consolation in this world from their riches. That's the difference. And it's a significant one. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all evil. There is a difference. 
And yet, as I look around our community, I'm not sure it matters a whole lot because one always seems to follow the other. Where there's smoke, there's usually fire. And this is why we need to warn each other as disciples living in the area that we live in. Talk about this with those that you're discipling. Talk about, talk about what it means to live in the West Tonka area, to have every creature comfort you need at your fingertips, to never know want or need or hunger, and yet not find your ultimate consolation in that reality. Talk about that in your discipling relationships. That's hard. Verse 25 is hard too. Let's take a look. Verse 25 says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now remember, this is the antithesis of verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And how does Matthew say it? Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. The point is spiritual thirst. And the point of verse 25 then, it's a picture. It's a picture of a person whose life is so incredibly full with their family, their work, their friends, their finances, their leisure, their calendar is full. It's so full, there's no room for Christ and His church. As the Puritan pastor Matthew Henry comments, they are full of themselves without God and Christ. That's a frightening picture, but it's an increasingly common one in our day and age. You need to get at this with the person whom you're discipling, with other believers. Equip those you mentor to spot this in the culture around them and in their own heart where necessary. How tragic it would be to be so stuffed full of the world of God and have no place for the Word of God. Jesus goes on to warn us in verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I remember this one week ago at our elder meeting. I was reading these verses with the brothers who were there, and Andy Kaler pipes up, I live in the woe zone. That was so powerful to me, I wrote it in my Bible. I live in the woe zone. What's Andy talking about? Well, in other words, he, he sees himself, or at least the temptation of verses 24 to 26, particularly verse 25 for him. And if you spend any time with Andy Kaler at all, you know the man likes to laugh. But when we were studying these verses, this one in particular, I assure you, he wasn't laughing. What's this verse about? Because if it's saying what it seems to be saying on the surface, then Andy Kaler's in a world of hurt, not to mention Kenny Graves. Happen to know Matt Cunningham has a sense of humor. These folks like to laugh. Is Jesus condemning those with a sense of humor? Well, if he were, he would have to include himself, wouldn't he? Jesus was full-orbed, healthy in terms of humor. The portrait Jesus paints in the Gospels, uh, the portrait that the Gospels paint of Jesus, rather, is one of a man with an incredibly healthy sense of humor. Jesus laughed. There's no doubt about it. So as you might imagine, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper here than just on the surface of it to know just what he's pronouncing judgment on. Again, New Testament scholar is helpful here. Daryl Bach, in this case, says, levity or harmless humor is not in view here, but laughter that is boastful, self-satisfied, condescending, or rejoicing in the harm that others experience. That's what he's after. And these individuals that I've named, I know well enough to know that that's not the sort of humor that 
defines them. However, this is the type of laughter that rings through our neighborhoods at parties that you may go to this summer. This is the type of laughter that rings through our school hallways and places of work. This is the sort of laughter that peppers our daily news feeds and social media. This is high-handed laughter. It's not the self-deprecating laughter of the humble, but rather the proud laughter of the fool. We do need to guard against this in our lives and help one another navigate, especially through the world in which we live, because it's loaded with it. This is what we're doing when we're making disciples who make disciples. Finally, verse 26 says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now notice Jesus says all here. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. This is not actually a live possibility for a faithful Christ follower. Remember the antithesis in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. Or the promise of 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus had enemies. And to belong to Jesus is to inherit those enemies. It just goes with the territory. I think the idea here in verse 26, if I'm not mistaken, is the idea of people who are possessed by people-pleasing. They spend nearly every waking moment of their lives shoring up their reputation in in endless, ceaseless self-examination through flattery of other people, through avoiding conflict with others. That's the image here. When you do that, woe to you when all people speak well of you, and they will, because you're clearly not following Christ, who had plenty of enemies. As we follow Christ, we will too. We'll have enemies. So here's what you need to tell the person you're mentoring. You need to look them square in the eye, take them by the shoulders, and say, what must die is your fleshly desire to please people. What must never die is the will to love them. I first heard that from a pastor named Dave Hansen. The way that he originally put it was, what must die in every Christian is the subconscious desire to please people. What must never die is the will to love them. That's what you want to see born in the heart of the person that you're mentoring. A fear of the Lord that chases away the fear of man, that's unconcerned about whether or not people speak well of you or not. Whether or not you please people, you can love them. That's what you want to see born in the part of the person you're mentoring. So what our culture would consider normal, in other words, in verses 24 to 26. We want to rebel against with all that's within us. Verses 24 to 26 is just worldliness. And that's why it looks so common. Worldliness, good definition of worldliness I came across at one point was, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's worldliness. Whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And verses 24 to 26 parade this in full view. This is what our world pursues or just puts up with or shrugs its shoulders at. And we want to see a genuine cause for legitimate concern, though, with it. Well, we're out of time, so let's, let's review. Disciple-making involves seeing this world upside down, knowing that one day Jesus will turn things right side up. 
In the context of a personal discipling relationship, disciples who make disciples are quick to address four clear evidences of God's grace and four genuine causes for legitimate concern. So test yourself this morning. Do you with Jesus see things upside down? Are you positioned well to build into the life of other believers? Do you see things upside down? Do you? Which camp do you more readily identify with, the first or the second? Are you living in the woe zone this morning? Are you swimming against the tide today? You know, summer is such an easy season to coast. Don't do it. Don't coast in your relationship with the Lord. The path of least resistance in this life will inherit nothing but misery in the next. So for the glory of God and for your own joy and for the sake of the joy of others around you and the expansion of Christ's kingdom, don't just follow Jesus. Follow Jesus in, a way, in such a way that you're seeking to help others follow him as well, building into disciples who make disciples. Luke chapter 6 is an outstanding field manual for this. And so we're going to lean into it in these days and receive every drop of blessing we can from it. Next week, we'll take our second step into Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount as Guy Runkle is preparing to preach a sermon entitled Making Disciples Who Make Disciples Part 2, Love Your Enemies. We'll pick it up then. Right now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for leveling with us. This is the sermon on the level. This is not an easy sermon, Lord. You just didn't tickle people's ears when you preached. You had a way of, of putting it straight. This is a scalpel that moves right into our souls. And just like a, a scalpel, it, it, it stings, but it also sings. It, it heals. And it brings wholeness to us. It, it removes the cancer that's within. And so I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just let this text do its work in our hearts. Father, we want to be disciples who make disciples, and so we want to be concrete about what that means. Lord, as we meet with each other, as we pair up, as we, as we seek to be disciples who make disciples, I pray that we, would, that we would put the Sermon on the Mount front and center in our lives, that we would examine it, or, or rather we would look into the mirror and let it, let it examine us. And I ask that you would help us, Lord, to be stronger and more rooted in the things of God as we move into the, the middle part of this summer. Grant, Lord Jesus, that we would become more like you incrementally, day after day, week after week, month after month, season after season. Lord, raise up an army of men and women, of reproducing leaders who are prepared to move this church forward into the days ahead. We are optimistic, but only if you empower us and go with us. Use this text now. Give it a, an extra lifespan by the power of your spirit in the life of this church, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.